You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You don't just live in your home. You live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Alex Gibney is an old-school truth-teller. Watching one of his documentaries focused on strong characters, there's a propulsive set of facts that expose malfeasance or utter incompetence. Often the victim is the little guy or our highest ideals like democracy. No matter the topic... Gibney's films are always a fascinating, intense, and enlightening ride. Gibney's most recent film, The Crime of the Century, which he wrote, directed, produced, and narrated for HBO, tells the origin story at the heart of the opioid crisis poisoning our nation. Big Pharma celebrated its marketing muscle, using parties to lure doctors to write scripts. This was a new drug cartel. There were drug dealers wearing suits and lab coats. Basically, here's some money, write some scripts. Yes. I'm looking at this and I'm going, clearly we're breaking the law. Purdue ends up getting Alex Gibney has made more than 30 films in the last 20 years. In 2008, he won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for Taxi to the Dark Side, his film on the CIA's use of torture. Whether he's taking on Scientology or Russian interference in our elections or iconic figures like Steve Jobs, Lance Armstrong, and Frank Sinatra, Gibney never flinches and his stories stand up. In fact, he can't think of a time when he wanted to reissue one of his docs to make a correction. I, I can't think of a time when it did happen. And I think about that a lot because I try to find a moment in time where it feels like we're absolutely right and sometimes you know i'm afraid that things may come out that would cause me to want to redo it but i i, I sort of feel like that films represent a certain wisdom at a moment in time and it's it's best to leave them i am kind of following up on a film i did and doing another film to kind of dig a little bit deeper the film i did uh, taxi to the dark side mm -hmm. i'm doing a kind of follow-up to it but i've never been motivated to really go back in it's, it seemed like such a, a painful process. But I usually do think about, like, if I'm going to end this film here, why are we ending it here, and will it stand the test of time? When the film is over, do you ever privately follow up about certain aspects of it? Does your caring, does your curiosity, does your concern end when the film is distributed? No. 
the ghosts of all my films tend to follow me, and I often keep in touch with sources and, and interview subjects. And in odd ways, they keep coming back to films I make henceforth. So they kind of reverberate. It's, it, it's a little bit like that moment in, in Ghostbusters where they say, don't cross the streams. Well, my streams are constantly getting crossed. It seems like characters from one film are intruding into another. They all stay with me, which becomes a little bit vexing. Sometimes it's hard to keep them straight. In your career, your fabulous career, you've made 30 films or so in the last 20 years, won an Oscar. But of course, documentary films have become content for streamers and, and major, major broadcasters. What are your observations about that change during your career? What was it like in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, it was terrible. My wife used to tell me, I want you to go out and get a job, and whatever you do, don't mention that you're interested in documentaries, because they'll kick you right out the door. So I had to be very cautious. And then there was that terrible era of cable television, where every channel had to be branded which meant if you were clicking through channels, as soon as you got to a channel, it had to look like it was the History Channel or whatever. And which meant that as a creator, you were just cranking out sausages. It was the worst possible thing. But then I discovered, particularly for political documentaries, there was a moment where theatrical films could say things that were pretty potent so long as you made them entertaining. And that was a huge revelation, which changed everything. And because suddenly you weren't operating in a commercial environment where it was the least common denominator and basically you were trying to sell audiences to advertisers, people were buying the content. That is to say, they'd go to a movie because they wanted to see the movie, not because they wanted to buy soap. So th that was great. And I think that's what helped to explode the moment that we're in now. My only concern about the streaming environment is the extent to which some of the streamers begin to start relying too much on their algorithms so that they come to you and say, well, our algorithm says that at, you know, minute 32, you should really be changing the narrative to this so that we'll keep our viewers. We're hearing a little bit of that, and that to you me are. would be a nightmarish. Is that a contractual thing for you? You're an Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. Is it understood that you have final cut, or is that all boilerplate in a contract? No, I, I mean, I, I, I generally speaking have final cut. There are very few instances where I don't have final cut, but there are some, and, and particularly some of the films that I produce where I'm not directing them per se, that's where we're hearing a little bit more of these notes. Because, uh, I, I mean, in addition to what I do, I have a company that, that does a lot of other stuff. And you get a lot of these notes that refer to, to algorithms, and it becomes a scary process. I mean, even the studios tried to make it a science, but it's never been a science. Right. It's always been a Well, they, yeah, they try to widgetize something creative, right. and that's, that's impossible. Well, as I often say, all of their algorithms and all of their research and so forth is to achieve the lingering fantasy of the risk-free entertainment product. And, right. I, and I often say to them, <laughs> the pursuit of the risk-free entertainment product is absurd. I mean, there's no such thing. Absurd. You know, we can only rely on our instincts and the instincts that got us where we are. Now, when you talk about your company and you talk about what you're producing and, and, and not producing, I want you to explain what's the difference between an executive producer and a producer. There's a couple of different types of producers. How do you function as a producer in your company's work? On the projects where I'm named as a producer or an executive producer, I, I generally have a creative role. And sometimes that has to do with raising the money, but often it has to do with 
having some say or guidance in terms of the overall creative direction, though, you know, we try very hard to empower our directors to do mm-hmm. films the way they want to do them. But sometimes on a series in particular, where you're coalescing around something, like I did a series for Netflix for a couple of years called Dirty Money, which I was very proud of. It's all about corporate malfeasance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we purposefully engaged directors to do things their own way. That said, you know, it came out of my experience on Enron, which which was one where you invest in the wild criminality of the perps. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of colorful, kind of heist-like vibe Mm -hmm. that you engage in. So as executive producer, I'm I'm trying to encourage the directors to lean into that kind of thing without being overbearing about it. So sometimes I'm the beard and sometimes (laughs) I'm, uh, sometimes I come, come on a little stronger than that. You now have, what, like 100 or 120 people working at Jigsaw? So the company itself, that is to say permanent employees, is fairly small. It's like 14 or 15 people. But at times, we, we can have as many as 200 people working in the, in the space on various projects. So that's where things get pretty daunting. Are you ever sitting in your office screaming into a cushion or you're going to cry and you're telling your staff, please don't bring me any more projects to do because there's the fear you're going to become the Jeff Koons of documentary filmmaking where like you're running from room to room and going, yes, no, change this, brighten this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really try. I mean, that would be the stereotype. And, and I do scream into my pillow, but usually not because of that. I mean, if if I can get projects made, great. But I purposely tell you know, the other executives at the company, there are many projects here I don't want to be involved in, not because they're bad projects, but because it's important that they run themselves. Because otherwise, I get spread too thin. And who needs that? Then it becomes a kind of proxy system. The whole idea is to create a company that will run of itself and last long after I've left the field. Well, when uh, you talked before about the streamers and their algorithms, what I found with some of the even in the podcast world, what they're basically saying is, we need eight episodes because we don't get into the gravy till episode six. Episodes one through five, we break even. Six, seven, and eight is when we make money. So we need eight episodes. And I'm like, well, I think I got six good ones. And they're like, we need eight episodes. Do you find that that's challenging for you in terms of when you make films? Sometimes. And we try, honestly, to push back on that because the, the last thing you know, you want is to do a story that feels like it's run out of gas and you just keep flogging it. So yeah, sometimes we do get that. But then sometimes the algorithm changes. Like, you know, some of the streamers are like, well, that's the way we used to think. And now now it's back to five is the magic number or whatever, you know. Haven't you heard? And and, Yeah, exactly. You you clearly didn't get the memo. There's a website you go to. How many episodes this week? It's four. Dot com, right. Yeah, exactly. Now, you have a a great volume of work where you are developing material, making films and series and so forth, limited series, with some great, great writers. Some great, I mean, just Keithy alone and Larry Wright, who I worship. Because you'd worked with Larry before on Going Clear. Going Clear on my trip to Al-Qaeda and and also, obviously, Looming Tower. So what was your first connection with Wright? Somehow we were put together on my trip to Al-Qaeda, which was a play that he had done about a one-man play that he starred in about the writing of The Looming Tower. 
And we got together on that, and I did a doc about it. It's, it's a part, half of it, or a lot of it is the play itself, and then we cut in and out of the play to do various documentary things. And we got on really well. And so then we were determined to do other stuff together. I, you know, I have a kind of a shorthand, I think, with writers, because my dad was a journalist, and that's the business I was supposed to go into. It was around me all my life. So in my films, while I make them consciously as films, they also they have what I would call journalistic baggage. That is to say, I'm really invested in, in a journalistic aspect of them that tries to get the facts right. But with somebody like Larry Wright, it's a similar process in terms of the storytelling aspect of it. You know, at, at greater length in the New Yorker pieces or in his books, which often come out of his New Yorker pieces, there is at once a kind of fact-finding discipline and also a storytelling discipline mm-hmm. where you're trying to engage an audience to come along this journey with you. And part of that is investing in the propulsion of the narrative, which is, I mean, that's storytelling, right? So Larry and I got on really well because he's always talking about stuff like that and and devices that he uses in his writing and, and so on. Going clear, that was maybe the biggest collaboration we had in terms of impact, though Looming Tower was also, you know, had pretty broad reach. When you do uh, Crime of the Century, when you do with something with HBO, the budget's pretty high, correct? It, it is. Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, though, and on this one, it, it got a lot higher than the original budget because our original deal with HBO said we were going to do a two-hour film. And then when we showed them the material, they said, well, this is clearly you know going over the bounds of the two hours. You've got much more material than that. And they let us expand it to a, a four-hour and in the case of Crime of the Century, I mean, to be honest with you, we actually started out working with the Washington Post. There were some journalists there, Scott Hyam and Lenny Bernstein and, and others, who had first made me kind of aware of the breadth of this story. And along the way, you know, I, I decided they had, were focusing mostly post-Sackler. And I, I decided I really needed and wanted to tell the Sackler part of the story to get the breadth of it. And that's what led me to Patrick. And in fact, Patrick and I ended up teaming up on not only this, but also a, um, a scripted version of the Sackler story called Painkiller, which is going to start shooting later this fall. When you're working on the Sackler story, as well as perhaps other stories, is there ever a fear of litigation? I mean, talk about a deep pockets opponent if you wound up getting litigated. Were you ever afraid that they would sue you? Yes. And that's why the reporting has to be really good. And I give a lot of credit to HBO for being really rigorous about that. But once you have the facts right, being very brave. I mean, I learned that on Going Clear. You know, there were a lot of lawyers attached to that film, but we were very good about getting our facts right. It's not only the stuff that's in, but the reporting that surrounds it. That's what gives you the foundation to put some of the stuff you put in the film. And so with Patrick, because we were working in different media, we were able to share things that we might not otherwise have shared if he was, say, another filmmaker. And he would give me some documents. I would give him some documents. And also we could geek out with each other. I mean, when you're deep into a project like this, very few people, particularly significant others, want to hear from you about the arcana of the opioid crisis. You know, it's like, okay, hon, that's enough. You know, we you're in bed at night time. and your wife's like, honey, what's wrong? And you're like, look at the molecular structure of this active ingredient. Look at this molecule. Have you ever seen a molecule? Now, but when you're doing these projects, you talked about all the lawyers attached to Going Clear. 
we were talking before about how the early days for you, because you work so much in unearthing truth and facts, and there's a journalistic stripe to what you do, that you've got a staff of people doing research, and maybe you have a part-time lawyer. I'm kind of joking here. And now your company, uh, the difference is you've got a lot more people on the payroll doing research, and you have 10 lawyers on the payroll. You know what I mean? Like, do you need more of everything to get the facts clear? You know, we don't operate the company that way. And, and actually, while we started to veer in that direction, I think we're going back to baseline to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. What we do is try to set it up more as units, you know, try to function not as a machine or a factory, but more like a studio where each uh, film or series has its own people. And, and it's a small but dedicated group. And attached to them are, are sometimes lawyers we frequently work with and sometimes journalists we frequently work with, but they're attached to that particular project. So each one is bespoke. It has its own DNA. And that, that tends to work out better because sometimes these things take a long time. Like Crime of the Century took close to three years to do with a small group that really gets intensively into the subject. That's what allows it to happen rather than a kind of big machine which attempts to crank these things out. They can't be cranked out because the rhythm of them sometimes depends on when you get documents or when you get people to talk. They have a pace of their own, yeah. Um, but I'm not even talking about the creative DNA or biology of the of project to project. I'm just talking about resources in terms of when you're first starting out, you might not have everything you need. And as you become this phenomenally successful filmmaker, one thing it affords you to do is to have more people come on and do more research and deepen your research and have more legal uh, help to protect you. Now, you know, I was in Sundance. I saw you there. I went to the screening. And uh, I'm in that rarefied position where I'm friends with Tom. You know, I mean, he's, he's a friend in terms of my career. You know, we don't see each other for long periods of time where we pick up where we left off. He had me come into a couple of uh, smaller parts and uh, two MI movies and so forth. And I've often speculated, and I even wrote in my memoir, I thought, I thought, what was it? What did he need this involvement in this organization, in this, uh, in this uh, faith or whatever you want to call it? What did he need it for? I wasn't quite sure what, it, what his purpose was. You know, he has everything, you know, wealth and fame and uh, legacy and the respect of the community. He has everything you could possibly imagine in a career as a, as, as a movie star. So what did this add to his life? And I, I, I speculated about that in my book. I, mean, I came up with a, an answer. But when you were doing Going Clear, the Scientology community which is diverse. I mean, there's different people. It's not all just Tom Incorporated, maybe, but all those people have been able to, in some way, shoo away any real close examination. And, and when I watched your movie, I was mildly taken aback by how deep you got. Your film was among the first people from a major filmmaker to say that the, the institution is guilty of certain abuses. I mean, they abuse people. Their attitude to me was always like, hey, man, we're not hurting anybody. You know, we manipulate people no more or no less than U.S. military recruitment companies do. You know, I mean, we have a certain kind of a thing we do to get people to want to join and sign up with us, but no one's being abused or hurt. And you... and, and what was the genesis of that movie? Why did you decide you wanted to go further and look into that even further? You know, what's interesting about that is that I had been offered to do that movie any number of times, and I had always turned it down because I always felt 
it was too fringe. There weren't that many Scientologists in the world, as opposed to, say, the Roman Catholic Church. I did, I did a film about the church, and coincidentally or not, two weeks after it premiered, the Pope resigned. So, um, you know, I was familiar with deep-seated religious organizations and also, you know, the pushback you can get. But in the case of Going Clear, it was Larry who convinced me Larry Wright, who convinced me to take it on, there's a phrase in his, uh, you know, subhead of his book is the prison of belief. And that idea was really interesting to me because then it was a deep dive into Scientology and indeed the abuses of Scientology. I mean, that that's the reason to be concerned is that the prison of belief leads to real human rights abuses. But the other reason I was interested in it is because people like to demonize Scientologists as crazies. And the prison of belief allowed me to put Scientologists in a mainstream tradition of how people invest or get lost in a prison of belief, whether it be religious belief or political belief, and can't get out, even mm -hmm. though the bars of the cell are open. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what really motivated me to get there. And then as we dug in, we took testimony and checked facts and found out stuff that other people hadn't found out before. And I, and I actually had a pretty big impact on the Scientology community itself. There were a lot of people who either left the church or who as ex-members of Scientology suddenly felt empowered to speak up in a way that they hadn't been able to do so before. Because, because Scientology, using its threat of litigation, because they had mm -hmm. launched the, maybe the, the most expensive uh, lawsuit ever against the media company when they went after Time Warner, you know, people were afraid. Mm -hmm. And HBO was incredibly impressive mm -hmm. in terms of its ability to back us up uh, once we convinced them that we had the goods. Filmmaker Alex Gibney. One person who never sought risk-free entertainment was Sheila Nevins as the head of HBO Documentary Films from 1979 until her retirement in 2018, Nevins laid the groundwork for our current golden age of documentaries. However, when she started in the early 80s, HBO wouldn't even use the word documentary. When we did promos for films, we would call them docutainment. We invented this <laughs> lunatic word because we were afraid that if we said documentary, people would feel that it was for the elite and that it was about politics and that it was not going to be about human stories. And so we, we hid behind this word docutainment. And then slowly but surely, it took a good 20, 25 years, we began to say, well, maybe it's not such a dirty word. And reality programming sort of said real people can be interesting in a trivial way. So then somehow it went docutainment, reality TV, yay, documentary, go for it. Say that real people, people without celebrity, people who are trying to survive in a complicated world. And say in their own words. And say it in their own words. To hear more of my 2017 conversation with Sheila Nevins, go to our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Alex Gibney talks about his first job out of film school, cutting trailers for exploitation films. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Alex Gibney has said he inherited some of his anti-authoritarian ways from his family. His father was a journalist who specialized in the culture and policy of post-war Japan. His mother founded the health education department at Boston's Children's Hospital. His parents divorced when Alex was young. And when he was a teenager, his mother remarried a champion of civil disobedience. My mom in 1968 fell in love with William Sloan Coffin Jr. He was at the time being tried for conspiracy with Dr. Spock in Boston. <laughs> and she had known him from before, and he was a very charming and charismatic guy. And he wooed her, and they ended up getting married, and we moved to New Haven when I was, uh, I think, a junior in high school. And ultimately, I did go to Yale for my right, sins. Right, 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 for your sins. And was it filmmaking? I mean, what was the first time you picked up a camera as a child? Were you interested in filmmaking as a child? Were you a huge film goer? I was into it as a kid, and I was always into cinema, but the thing that I think really changed me or turned me around were, were these great film societies at Yale, and there was 
there was always an interesting film on every night. You know, this is pre-video. So you, you'd go to these film societies and sit and watch. And, and at the time, documentaries and fiction films were, uh, distinctions weren't made. It wasn't like one was up and one was down. They were all interesting. And I can remember, you know, two in particular that really floored me. One was Gimme Shelter by the Maisels Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, about the Rolling Stones. And the other was Exterminating Angel by Louis Bunuel. And I thought, wow, you know, the, the, the possibility for expression in this medium is so enormous. So that's when I started to veer away from what my dad had in mind for me, which was to be a print journalist. Did you seriously consider that? I did. I did. Uh, but um, he lived in Japan for a lot of his life. And I was studying Japanese literature at the time, which meant I was like head buried in these endless character dictionaries. I started to veer away and, and, and found my own direction. But he really wanted me after college to go and take the interviews at Time, Life, Newsweek, you know, and, and, and go into the family business, which is what he had done. What did you study at Yale? Japanese literature. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. And, and, and I'm impressed because of all the Japanese documentaries you've made. It's incredible. Well, I did study under Donald Ritchie, the great Japanese film critic who knew so much about Kurosawa. And I'll give you one, I'll give you, I can do one film quote in Japanese, which is, And that's, uh, that's the end of Yojimbo. He says, I'll wait for you at the gates of hell. So, oh, my God. God. Now, when you, you know, were you make so you're studying Japanese literature at Yale, you're not, are you making films at the same time? I did. Uh, you know, I was studying film with a famous documentarian named Murray Lerner. He did a lot of those docs about the Newport jazz and folk festivals and at Instorf, who now teaches at Columbia. And so she was, she was a, one of my advisors. I mean, she was very young then, as, as we all were. I, so I, I was studying film and, and ultimately toward the end of my sojourn there, I, I was starting to, to, to move into that territory. And then I went to UCLA Film School. So, so you go to graduate school, and, you, and how many years were you in L.A.? Uh, well, I ended up staying in L.A. for a good many years, uh, like 12, 13 years. But, and I never actually finished UCLA, though they're happy to... Claim you. Cling me to their bosom now. But mm -hmm. um, uh, I loved it there. I just, I got a job with the Samuel Goldwyn Company. Right. At the time, mm -hmm. and I started doing things like cutting exploitation trailers. What exploitation trailers did you cut? Oh, uh, there was one called, my favorite was, one called Shockwaves. Uh, it was a film about mutant Nazis who come up from the ocean floor. Wow. That's where they went, to a secret ca underwater cavern. They manufactured a group of mutant Nazis that couldn't be killed, and their ship sank somewhere in the Caribbean. And then one day, a fishing boat happened to dislodge it, and up they came out of the, out from the yes. water. I thought they were in Buenos Aires. Peter Cushing, the, the Peter Cushing was in it. Peter Cushing was in it. Brooke <laughs> Adams was in it. There is a there is a line. They call them the Totenkor, Deathkor, creatures more horrible than any you can imagine. Oh, God. That was you Peter should make Cushing. a documentary about that. Well, yeah, the, the other trailer I did was for, it was for a TV trailer, I think, for the first assault on Precinct 13. And there was one that Nicholas Meyer wrote called Invasion of the Bee Girls. These were women who were half human, half bee. And when they'd have sex with you, they'd sting you to death. I, I, I know that woman. I yeah. know her. Yeah. I went out with her a few times. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got out on stage, but she tried. Yeah. She tried her best. Now, I had a small part in Looming Tower. 
I was very grateful to come and work with you guys. And I understand you're doing more of that, correct? You're going to be doing more narrative work? Yes. With luck, there's going to, I'm doing a feature this coming year. And this is one that's a real passion project. It's a story I, I've been thinking about for a long time, and, and it took a long time to get the script right. But I'm really looking forward to doing it. Who wrote and it? A guy named Matt Cook. He wrote a Patriot's Day, which was directed by Pete Berg. But interesting to me, he was a um, in the infantry in Iraq. And this is a this is very much of a war story. It's actually Vietnam War. And it's what it's really about is how hard it is to be a hero. And with Looming Tower, what was your input into that? I mean, you know, Larry, Danny, Futterman and I were, um, you know, co-conspirators early on in terms of coming up with the kind of the overall concept. Because Looming Tower is a vast book. Yes. And so how to contain it and how to focus it. And we, we decided to focus it on this battle between the FBI and the CIA in the run-up to 9-11 and to focus on Tahar Rahim's character, uh, you know, Ali Sufan is the the guy in which he, he was based, and and Jeff Daniels' character, John O'Neill, and obviously, you know, I mean, you play George Tennant, who was a critical character in this battle between the FBI and the CIA. In terms of the overall conceit, I, I had a lot of input. I I think that you know, it's fair to say that Danny and I had some <laughs> creative differences on it, and I won some and lost others, but that's the way things go. Now, there was some talk about another season of that, and that didn't happen. Did you realize that that was the right thing to come about, or were you disappointed that there wasn't another season of that? I was hugely disappointed. You were. I, I really think there could have been a great one. And in fact, out of that, I'm now doing a, a doc, which tells part of that story that I really wanted to tell in season two. Because, you know, when we originally came up with the concept, we had a notion for season two and then season three. And for a lot of reasons, season two didn't happen. So so I'm, I'm just in the process of finishing because it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So I'm yep. just in the process of finishing something that leans in to sort of the next chapter. Because Ali Sufan goes on and he ends up interrogating the first high-value detainee is a member of the FBI, but that's that detainee ends up being the, the patient zero of the CIA's torture program. Filmmaker Alex Gibney. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back... Alex Gibney talks about what he learned early in his career from working on a series about the blues with Martin Scorsese. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Alex Gibney is known for his films that challenge entrenched power, but he also has a deep catalog of work featuring musicians, from an early blues series with Martin Scorsese to Jimi Hendrix, James Brown, The Eagles, The Rolling Stones, and Frank Sinatra. When Gibney is working with a subject as lionized as Sinatra, I wondered, is there an expectation he'll put a shine on their legacy. Trust me, as the Sinatra family will tell you about some of the conversations we had, they weren't always pretty. They were uh, of the opinion that I didn't shine the statue enough. Though, though I, think, I think Tina, over time, came to, to become a much bigger believer in, in, in what we had done, even though she was the skeptic going in. So, you know, I had editorial control, so I could do what I wanted. I was focused in this film, though, a little bit more on Sinatra, the the musician, and his kind of Gatsby-esque character who kind of represented both the American dream and the American nightmare. And that, to me, was was interesting. Because I, I have to be honest, I mean, Frank Marshall was the one who, who encouraged me to take this project on. And I was not a big Sinatra fan. I knew him as kind of the guy who you know, hung around with Spiro Agnew, and I, I wasn't that interested, but I became, you know, in doing the film, which is one of the great things about doing docs, you become curious and you learn about a subject. I became a huge admirer of his in terms of his ability to tell stories in three minutes through his voice, uh-huh. but also the tension, the rough and tumble tension between where he came from and, and where he was ending up. And, you know, we could have we gone deeper into the mafia stuff probably and but i think that there was enough there to give you a sense of what was going on and that it wasn't like we skipped it and i think also the other thing that was tricky about him was his romantic life which i think we we did a pretty good job of Mm -hmm. dealing with the one woman who completely flummoxed him 
Um, Ava Gardner. So Ava Gardner, I mean, I'm a fool to want you is the one song Frank Sinatra wrote. Uh, maybe he wrote two, but that was the most famous one. And, and she kicked his ass, Ava Gardner did. And, and then he turns around and does this terrible thing to Mia Farrow, which we chronicle in the film, where he, he basically serves divorce papers on her, or has his lawyer serve divorce papers on her while she's on the set of Rosemary's Baby. And then she went on to point out that Rosemary's Baby outgrossed his film that was released at the same time. That's right. She made sure he knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that was a great experience, though. And, and a lot of people have come to me about that film, and it's become one of the films of mine that people like an awful lot. I loved it. Loved it. And I only highlighted my point that in, in this work that I've done, I mean, I did a podcast, we've done this for now nine or ten years, and I love doing this because of my, just my curiosity. And if there's one person, I mean, I'd probably write him a check for a million dollars to sit down and do the show with me, it would have been Sinatra. And that's the thing yeah. that's always so agonizing about the world we live in now where people are not, not so much expected, but they're allowed in a way. People have much more of an expectation of you being more forthcoming about the challenges and the struggles of that kind of work. And I thought to myself, God, wouldn't it have been great to get Sinatra on film and do a real interview that wasn't Larry King or some of that other crap, you know, to really make him sit down? I don't think I've ever seen... I wonder, did you ever see an in-depth interview with Sinatra where he really even touched on his pain? Because I think he was a guy in a lot of pain. He was. And one of the things that we got that was so valuable, I mean, not only did we get this 16 millimeter film of his first retirement concert in 1971, which we kind of used as a structure to tell the story of his life. But the more important thing we got were a couple of audio taped interviews that were done at great length, because part of the problem with most TV interviews, particularly back in the day, they were either rolling these huge video cameras where, where you're having to sit under these massive lights and everyone's sweating, or they're film cameras and you're changing the magazine, you know, every 12 minutes. Right. With audio, you could really have a conversation, which is what, I, of course, I try to do when I'm doing my interviews, to right. just have a conversation rather than ask questions. And it was those interviews with Sinatra, the audio taped interviews, which I think he was doing to explore whether or not he might want to do you know, an autobiography. Right. Those are the gold for us yeah. because they were very candid as well as a few sort of off-the-cuff kind of Q&A sessions he did, including one he did at Yale, which was wildly fun, you know, because when you got him in a moment where he didn't feel, he wasn't kind of pre-thinking his answers. Right. It was gold. It wasn't and you so could cautious. really feel yeah. his pain, his ambitions, his passions. It was, it was great. And, and his, his sort of profane reactions to everything around him. Now, I want to imagine, as silly as this is, that Alex Gibney is collaborating with Marty Scorsese, and uh, they're on the set together shooting something, and Alex Gibney says, don't put the camera there, Marty. Why would you put the camera there? <laughs> How, what's that collaboration like? Uh, it was a producer on a series called The Blues, which he was the executive producer on, and that was Marty's show. So he's a genius, and so my job on that series was to lay out the bats and balls so that the players could play. That right. was my job. And the glory of that was that it really started my career in a way because it was like watching men at work. Now, in that case, they were all men. There were no women. But, you know, between Marty, who directed a film, Clint Eastwood, uh, Vim Vendors, Antoine Fuqua, Charles Burnett, I, I got an up-close seat 
to watch them all work in this nonfiction arena, but nevertheless giving it a personal take so that these were authored works in nonfiction. It, it changed my life and my career. Now, for you, do you tend to be with the same group of people shooting? Do you have a, do you have a crew that you prefer? Or have you mixed it up with the people that you've used for your cinematic crew? Well, I mixed it up a lot, but the, there's one woman, Marise Alberti, who shot, she shot The Wrestler, she shot Creed, but she also shot Enron, Taxi to the Dark Side, and others, and Armstrong Lodge. She was a key collaborator for me early on because she took a weakness of mine, which was cinematography and visualizing the frame. I came up as an editor and really expanded my horizons in that area. She's an extraordinary talent because she bridged the worlds of documentary and, and fiction. So Marie's the key collaborator for me for a long period. She was also did, did a bunch of, of Going Clear as well. But then the editors have been, I've been just blessed. I mean, yeah. and those people I tend to go back to over and over and over again. Allison Elwood, Andy Grieve, Sloan Clevin, Mikey Palmer. What about music score? Music score, I've used a bunch of different people, but I keep coming back to the same ones. And I kind of cast composers depending on the project. Ivor Guest and Robert Logan, you know, I use them on Taxi to the Dark Side, but also Robert has kind of Eastern European background. So on Citizen K, this one about Russia, I used them and he was magnificent. And then Will Bates, I've used quite a bit, who's really an extraordinary talent. And also Pete Nichelle, who did Client 9. So I, I do like using the same person, but it, it, it feels almost like casting for some of these films. I know composers all like to feel like they can do anything, and they're probably right. But, uh, you know, I kind of cast them depending on what the film is about. Will Bates did a magnificently creepy score with the theremin, that mm -hmm. wonderful, weird instrument for going clear, which I, I, I found tremendously useful. Now, people view you, I mean, you're heading off, uh, it seems like, into a more dedicated period of making narrative films, but people view you as a great truth seeker. You know, you want to go out and, I don't want to say catch the bad guy, I don't want to make it like it's a prosecutorial, but exposing abuses of power seems to be a really, uh, in my mind, an obviously uh, potent theme in the work you do. Does it ever fade? Or are you, or like you describing the chemical molecules here? Would. What, right, that's what I say. Are you still walking along the beach of vacation and you're looking at your phone going, God damn it, I can't believe these people did, you know? <laughs> is outrage and indignation follow you everywhere you go? I'm afraid so. Uh, and, and, and I wish it wouldn't. And you outline my vacation. I'm about to go on a vacation for two and a half weeks, and I'm sure I'll be consumed with the issue of torture when I should just be dipping my lobster claw in butter. Right. Give me three docs that you wish you made. You mentioned Give Me Shelter, which I love. That's one. When We Were Kings and Waltz with Bashir. Stories We Tell would be another one. It's not really my style, but I love it. Absolutely love it. I turned to some people from the Hamptons Film Festival and I said, let's show a doc. I found out that Albert Mazels was visiting his daughter in Sag Harbor that weekend. And I said, I want to screen a film in the dead of winter. And they, they said, no one's going to want to come and watch a documentary film at Bay Street in February. I said, you watch. I said, everybody's looking for an excuse to get the F out of their house. We show Gimme Shelter. 
Brian Cosgrove, my friend, who's a DJ out here at the local radio station, Big Rock and Roll, and, that, uh, uh, and we contact Mazels, and he comes and does the Q&A afterward. We packed the whole place. 200 people came, and we showed this movie, and people literally got a contact high watching Altamont. It was like, what a great vibe. It's that so movie fantastic. And two things I, I, I always stunned me when I watched the film. First of all, it's a cinema verite murder mystery, and, and one of the directors is, is less heralded. Charlotte Zwerin, yes. who's the editor, and she put the structure together magnificently. So it plays like a murder mystery. The other thing that's interesting is a lot of that film is about listening and watching. And you wouldn't think that that would be important. But to, that scene where they're all listening to wild horses is yeah. just an exquisite scene. Yeah, yeah. And then the scenes where they're watching the footage at Altamount yeah. and realizing their complicity in the violence those are magnificent scenes and you they're just so counterintuitive and, and testify to the kind of poetry that the Maisels brothers and in this case Charlotte Zwerin were really into and that that film just deserves to be seen over and over and over I again. love that moment where like you said they're listening to Wild Horses then they're listening to the radio show and Charlie Watts says after Sonny Barger is uh, yapping about the angels and their mantle and what they need to do and Charlie, Charlie Watts says ride on Sonny you know, they're all, they're all just so overwhelmed, wondering how much, of, how much gas did they throw on the fire? Well, let me just say this. I mean, I'm obviously a boundless admirer of yours. You're one of the great filmmakers of the last 50 years. You've made so many great, great, fascinating and significant and important and entertaining documentary films. So I hope when you go on your trip, you'll put the phone in a drawer uh, and, and But take it out for the last couple days, because I want you to be tortured and haunted for just the last couple days of the of the trip. I'm, I want to get you back in the zone. I'm, I'm with you. And and there's a woman who's very much on your side who would agree. So I'm going to do the very best I can to, to, to hide the phone under a rock. For at least part of the trip. Yes, definitely. My very best to you on all things I loved, Crime of the Century, was the idea that you could see how much the government is for sale. Yes. To watch these people change laws and change legislation to suit the purposes of these people in this industry, it was absolutely numbing to me. That's one of the most numbing parts of the film. Thank you, Alec. A great pleasure talking to you. Alex Gibney. His latest film, The Crime of the Century, about the opioid epidemic, is available on HBO Max. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.